Tehran to Tangiers, there is a devastating toll on human health. The International Monetary Fund says the priority is to save lives. But the pandemic is also causing significant economic turmoil in the region through the twin shocks of disruption to trade and production and plummeting oil prices. What will the rest of 2020 look like in the Middle East and North Africa? You're listening to the Business Extra podcast coming from the National in Abu Dhabi. I'm Mustafa Al-Rawi, Assistant Editor-in-Chief. With me down the line is Kelsey Warner, our future editor. Hi, Kelsey. Hi, Mustafa. So a pretty dire uh, economic outlook from the IMF, both at a global and a regional level um, this week. Um, there is hope, as we've talked about before, of a recovery by the end of the year in 2021. But right now, while we're in the middle of it, it doesn't seem particularly comforting. No, indeed. I mean, anytime the Great Depression is evoked in a forecast, um, I think it sends chills through anyone. <laughs> but uh, it, right now, I still think we are very much in that prioritizing healthcare and holding the economy in tension. We're still in that. So we're still talking public health crisis and the economy. We're not yet just talking about the economy. Correct. And, and there's about 140,000 people across the region that have been infected with the coronavirus, thousands have died. Thankfully, tens of thousands have recovered. Um, but the cost goes well beyond uh, health and human impact. Economies have experienced sudden stop in many sectors, tourism, retail, hospitality in particular, hard hit. Governments have responded quickly, but households and businesses are still at risk of financial peril. There is hope of a rebound later in the year, as everyone keeps saying. To explain what the rest of 2020 looks like, joining us down the line from Washington is Jihad Azor, the IMF's director of the Middle East and Central Asia Department and a former Lebanon finance minister. It's great to have you with us. Thank you for joining us down the line from Washington from what is a busy period. I know you've um, uh, put out your outlook, not only global outlook from the IMF, but also this regional outlook as well. But what would be nice is to start with understanding what has the last few weeks been like for your team at the IMF in the current crisis? Oh, uh, well, thank you very much for having me. The last few weeks were uh, pretty hectic and busy because in addition to uh, the, um, uh, uh, all the issues that we have to deal with, update our economic outlook, provide additional um, policy assistance and policy dialogue with the authorities, we needed to scale up our financial uh, uh, facilities, as you know, the fund came up with a certain number of facilities, a rapid facility of $100 billion, few other initiatives in order to help countries address, address the coronavirus issue. We have already had more than 90 countries who have requested to get access to our facility. Working from home doesn't help, uh, but, you know, you have to cope with it. It's, um, it's what makes it exciting. Well, you, you're coping with it and you're also putting out new forecasts. The latest one um, is, is quite grim for 2020 for the economies in the Middle East and North Africa. On average, it's an expectation of a sort of over 3% contraction this year. I mean, how bad is it really, Jihad, at the moment, the outlook? Well, uh, here too, we had to uh, juggle with issues because things have been changing constantly. Well, the region is affected by a dual shock, uh, and those two shocks are reinforcing each other. 
The first one is the outbreak of the coronavirus and its impact on trade, its impact on exchange of goods and services, and also the drop in oil price that was driven in the beginning by decline in demand and was precipitated by the non-extension of the OPEC plus agreement. Add to this that the financial conditions have tightened and in order to fight the coronavirus uh, outbreak, countries had to resort to gradually shut down their economies. Therefore, when you put all these elements together, you have one of the most challenging crises that the region lived through over the last century. It's bigger than the 2008 uh, international financial crisis, bigger than the drop in oil price in 2015, and it's a multiple in terms of uh, repercussions. And the question is, uh, it's very difficult at this stage to assess how fast we can recover and how strong the recovery is going to be. Jihad, uh, Mustafa put in percentage of GDP terms what the IMF is estimating in terms of a drop. It's $425 billion in terms of the region's output this year. Can you talk a bit about what that actually means on the ground for families, for households, for SMEs in particular, as well as you know, sectors here that are really important to the lifeblood of the economy, like retail and hospitality? Okay, the $425 billion covers two sub-regions. One is Middle East and North Africa, and the other one is Central Asia and Caucasus. But to answer your question, of course, this is a crisis that affects the livelihood of people because by uh, the matter of fact, you need to gradually reduce the level of activities which affects uh, SMEs, affects employees, and also affects a um, certain number of sectors that were more hit than others. For example, tourism, uh, retail, uh, transportation, airlines, those are sectors that were affected more than others. What we saw in the region, we saw rapid response by government in order to uh, A, address the um, healthcare part uh, of the crisis and B, uh, allow the engines of the economy to be protected. It's different from one country to another, and in general, we saw government implementing two set of measures. One, fiscal uh, programs uh, that are geared toward helping uh, the private sector to delay certain number of issues. And financial and banking uh, and monetary response in order to keep access to finance working. Uh, and this, in fact, is in the range of three and a half, three point eight percent on average in the region, with big diversity between countries when it comes to the fiscal response and the financial response. It varies. Uh, certain countries have injected huge level of liquidity, especially when they have important financial sector, like for example the case of Bahrain. The difficulty is we don't know how long the crisis is going to last and to which extent this level of confinement will, will, will stay with us for a certain period. Our estimate, uh, and this is the base of our projections for this year, is at Q4, the global economy will start exiting uh, from the current shock, and then the recovery will be in uh, V-shape form, i.e. that we will have rapid uh, improvement in economic conditions yet, it's not um, realistic to think that next year we will go back to the pre-COVID shock uh, levels. Do you think that the current action by governments 
should then, according to that forecast, be sustained into 2021? Well, it's too early to answer your question, although it's an important one, and it has to be also different from one country to another. Countries who have high level of buffers, they can uh, sustain uh, long-lasting uh, stimulus or, or measures. Those who have less or have no uh, space, they need to reorganize themselves in order to, within their current envelope, reprioritize uh, expenditures. For example, to give priority to healthcare expenditures and maybe delay some expenditures, even including on the capital spending side. I think it's very important here to go back on case-by-case basis. And this is why, for example, at the level of the fund, we have adjusted our instruments in order to address the different type of shocks. We have with this rapid facility of $100 billion, um, we're providing rapid and immediate access to countries who are facing the shock uh, and their balance of payment. We are providing with uh, a new uh, facility uh, debt service relief in terms of grants for low-income countries and countries in fragility. And we are currently contemplating a certain number of additional instruments that provide maybe different type of relief, for example, liquidity lines for countries who have strong backlog, but currently they are facing because of um, the uh, pressure we're seeing in the markets. Uh, they have difficulty to finance themselves in the international financial markets. Yeah, of course, as we're amid the crisis, we're still within the pandemic, so prioritizing expenditure on healthcare is totally understandable. But what is the IMF recommending governments prioritize as they consider like, who or what should governments be prioritizing in the region as they mull these new financial policies or packages? In our approach, we are recommending three-step approach. One is save lives, and this is by scaling up the response to the crisis, as well as also the containment strategy. Save the engine of the economy by making sure that uh, measures are targeted and introduced on a timely manner, but also transitory in order to allow sectors that are uh, hit and hit uh, hard by the shock uh, to avoid going into dislocations and providing support to SMEs and low-income people. Three uh, is to prepare for the repair and the recovery. And this is, has to start now. Although we are navigating in an uncertain uh, and uncharted territory still, um, we need to uh, start thinking what will be the situation when we exit and what are the challenges that we need to address and how from now countries need to start preparing themselves. And this is something that we are also asking ourselves, how we can accompany countries in this journey of stabilization and recovery and what are the instruments that we should use and also what are the policy recommendations that we should give to our countries. And this is why I am personally and my team, we're in constant dialogue and discussion on bilateral basis with the ministers and the governments of Central Bank of this region. And also we're doing this at the multilateral level with other IFIs and uh, multilateral banks, including also with the regional development banks. It's important at this stage that all efforts are in fact working uh, uh, to create the biggest impact in helping countries address this big issue. 
I'm just curious if you're seeing that third stage at all yet, and if you have any concrete examples of that sort of discussion around recovery and implementation of that sort of plan that you're talking about. Well, we have to recognize that this crisis took everybody by surprise, and we are still in in the eye of the storm. But this is something that we are already ourselves uh, thinking of. Uh, We're going back to the drawing board to see what needs to be done when we exit and how the situation will look like and what are the challenges that companies need to face. And um, uh, next week, we will have a meeting between the ministers and governors of the region and ourselves with our managing director, where one of the issues that we want to discuss is what should we do collectively when we exit the crisis? What are the challenges and what are the measures that we need to start thinking from now? Otherwise, we will miss the recovery and the region that is already facing high level of unemployment and low level of inclusion uh, will face even more difficult challenges going forward. So the, the issue of jobs, unemployment, there's you know, a lot of forecasts of rising levels of poverty across the region. You mentioned that you know, each country has their different scenario, but we had countries like Iraq, Lebanon, Iran, that already had their financial problems before the pandemic hit. And in particular now for Iraq and Iran, as you mentioned, you had that shock of the oil price. How can these economies provide social safety nets for people in the absence of increased job creation, which has always been the panacea, but we've never quite managed to keep it going? Well, indeed, um, countries who face fragility uh, have a big issue uh, and difficulty today to cope with the crisis. I would add to this list countries who are in conflict, like Libya, like Yemen, uh, Yemen, like Syria. Those countries have a weak medical infrastructure and weak infrastructure altogether. They have a huge number of internally displaced or refugees, and they need to cope with all these elements at the same time. And their fiscal space is very limited and in certain cases, unexistent. And in some cases, it's those countries don't have access to, uh, to finance. And this is why, for example, with Yemen, we are trying to provide them with grants because currently they don't have the ability to borrow. Yes, those are the challenges that the countries of the region and the region itself need to uh, think collectively on how to deal with them and how to provide the support for those who have difficulty getting access to, uh, to support. And can it be cash from the IMF? Is that, is that a big solution? One answer? Well, you know, different institutions have different instruments. We are, as an institution, uh, have a big capacity in order to respond to crises and to provide financing to governments when they need it. And this is something that we have been putting in place. Um, we have more than 90 countries who have already requested fund assistance. But our instruments... Uh, are not uh, uh, catered for all kinds of of shocks. We are trying to uh, expand. Uh, We provided this rapid facility of $100 billion. Uh, We're working on another facility that is geared toward low-income countries in terms of providing them through grants with debt relief for their debt service with us. We're working on a liquidity facility for countries who have a strong macro, but they cannot access the market because of um, the tension that we see in the capital markets and in the financial uh, uh, sector. Uh, And also we're trying to uh, identify what needs we could as a fund cover. But also there are other institutions, and this is why we're coordinating with them. 
the World Bank, the UN agencies, as well as also some of the regional development banks can do more on those humanitarians that we could do. Uh, but we take this into account. And this is why, for example, we are encouraging countries to give priority to healthcare and to give priority to social programs that will allow them to give more resources to the low-income people, to the fragile groups in the society. We are in a region where the level of informality is high. And therefore, we need to provide support to those who are not part of the formal network. And what do you think happens with Iran if they don't manage to access that $5 billion that they've been asking the IMF for in terms of their economic path in the next few months? Well, you know, first of all, personally, we recognize and I have a lot of sympathy to what the people of Iran are enduring, which is similar to many people around the world with the outbreak of the coronavirus. And in this case, it comes over and above a very weak economic and financial situation. Um, we have received the request and um, um, given the limited uh, engagement we had over the recent times with, uh, with Iran, uh, it's taking more time to uh, assemble uh, the information required in order to process the request. Uh, broadly speaking, the economy in Iran will face uh, another year of, uh, of negative growth uh, of 6%, uh, coming from 75 uh, minus 7.5% last year. Uh, and this is uh, a difficult economic situation. Therefore, the priorities are protect lives. Uh, and do whatever it takes in order to redirect um, resources uh, and make funding available to address this issue. Also, uh, address some of the weaknesses that the economy was facing. For example, address the issue of having a multiple exchange rate that has led to an increase in inflation. And dealing with that will help reduce inflation and, and also reduce the pressure that exists on, uh, uh, on the currency. Um, and also reprioritize uh, some of their spendings in order to provide more uh, financing to social programs as well as also medical programs. And this is something that uh, also other countries are facing. And I think it's important to recognize that the Yemen, the Libya, the Syria, uh, also those are countries who are facing um, a very challenging situation uh, and they need, uh, they need support. Jihad, what is your outlook for the UAE and Saudi Arabia? Well, UAE and Saudi Arabia are two countries who have been affected because the size of their export uh, and the oil market is large. And also uh, for UAE, it's an economy that has succeeded in the past diversifying the economy outside the oil. Unfortunately, the nature of the shock affected a certain number of sectors that are flourishing in the UAE trade. Uh, transportation, tourism. Uh, uh, the government in both countries reacted and reacted fast in providing both uh, the needed measures to curb and uh, address the aftermath of the COVID-19 on people. And also they have introduced both fiscal measures as well as also monetary and financial measures in order to provide a relief for, for their economy. The recent one was the one that the Central Bank of UAE has introduced. Uh, of course, uh, the extension of the OPEC Plus agreement last week provides uh, um, good news for those countries because it will help stabilize oil price 
But I think uh, what is going to be important for those large economies is to protect some of the key sectors from risk of dislocation, provide uh, the needed support for the engines of the economy to be protected. And then uh, in terms of recovery, uh, because of their size, it will depend also on how fast and how strong globally the recovery will be, because this is will bring with, with it increase in demand for oil and also uh, will bring with it uh, the re-establishment of the trade and the value chain routes. Jihad, you're, you're a former finance minister of Lebanon. And, and, if, and finally, uh, if you could kind of give us your insight, having understood the country, but also seeing from the IMF vantage point, the triple crisis that Lebanon is facing, long-time economic, political, and now health, there's been a lot of sort of hesitancy about asking the IMF formally for help. Do you, do you expect that there will be a formal request from the Lebanese soon? Well, of course, the Lebanese people are facing um, huge uh, and challenging uh, shocks. I would add a fourth one, which is Lebanon is hosting a large number of refugees, uh, especially for the size of the Lebanese economy. It's an additional uh, burden on their shoulders. And the Lebanese people have been enduring uh, before uh, the outbreak of the crisis in October last year. Uh, slow growth, as well as also challenging economic conditions. Of course, we are in a dialogue with the Lebanese authorities, and uh, uh, as per their request, we are providing them with technical assistance on some of their policies, and we are engaging with them in a dialogue on their overall reform program. Lebanon needs uh, a strong reform package that provides a solution to uh, the crisis that uh, financially and monetary Lebanon is facing, uh, a plan that is uh, convincing in order to restore confidence, and also a plan that addresses the structural problems that Lebanon uh, have been facing, and those problems contributed to uh, the outbreak um, uh, and the crisis that Lebanon is enduring. In addition to that, Lebanon has to deal with the outbreak of the coronavirus. And the measures that the authorities are taking go in the right direction in order to control and to address, mitigate uh, the impact of that. And the fund stands ready to keep helping uh, Lebanon uh, based on what the Lebanese authorities want. Jihad Azur from the IMF, thanks so much for joining us. I know it's a very busy time. Thank you. Before we finish, here are some of the other stories you need to know about on the national.ae. JP Morgan Chase is raising borrowing standards for most new home loans as the US bank moves to mitigate lending risk. Oman's Tagir Finance disclosed it has an exposure of 1.23 million rials to embattled UAE healthcare firm NMC Health. And the new normal for telcos will be largely driven by more discerning customers with an increased emphasis on digital offerings. That's from Johan Denelent, the chief executive of Do. So that's it for today. Kelsey, thanks so much for being with us. Mustafa, always good to be here. And thank you all for listening. If you have enjoyed the show, do subscribe or leave a review. Arthur Edison, Aisha Khan have been our production team for this remotely produced episode. Thanks again, all of you, for being with us. Join us again next time.